Uh, good evening, my name's Adrian Goldberg and welcome to Adrian Goldberg's talk show live here at the Glee Club in Birmingham. Thank you all very much indeed for coming. Tonight's guest has got an incredible rock and roll pedigree. In fact, he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2017. He was part of the, well, can we call it the swinging 60s scene in Birmingham, what they tried to call Brumbeat was later a founder member of The Move with Roy Wood and others, of course. He's got a great story about his time in The Move, being sued by the then Prime Minister, Harold Wilson. He was a founder member of ELO, stayed with the band across a period of 15 years. There's another legal battle there as well. And he was in Black Sabbath, of course. And uh, he was in Black Sabbath at the time that the band inspired the famous Stonehenge scene in Spinal Tap. So we'll get the full story of that. Now he plays with the band Quill. So ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together please and welcome our guest tonight, Bev Bevan. Well, let's go through it chronologically, Bev. You are a local lad, aren't you? Very much a local lad. Yeah. Um, uh Born in South Yardley and uh, moved to Spark Hill when I was seven. Went to Mosley Grammar School. My first day at Mosley Grammar School, I was literally a, a fag, as we were called in those days. And I think th that th might have a different meaning. Yes, yeah, it has uh, <laughs> yeah, changed since then. <laughs> but they, used to, they, they, used to, they had this thing um, for the first day of new boys arriving. Um, the older members of the of the school in the second year, third, fourth, fifth, um, they they used to pick on the, the the fags and throw them down this thing called the fag pit, in, at Motor Grammar, and this one poor he, he was a miserable, tiny, um, skinny little thing, and and I and I'm I've always been quite big and. They didn't realise, they thought I was a second former or a third former even. So I rescued this poor morsel from the fag pit. It turned out to be Jasper Carrot. <laughs> In those days he was Robert Norman Davis. And he later got, um, he was he nicknamed Jasper at school. Um, and became Carrot much later. And uh, uh, we met our on that first day at school. We were actually sat next to each other on our first day at school. Because I was Bevan. And he was Davis, and that the way it worked, we sat next to each other. And we've been um, best mates ever since, really. Yeah, lovely stuff. And uh, when did you start drumming then? Did, were you always a bit of a, just, just whacking things? <laughs> uh, that's quite a nice story, too. <laughs> I, I, I grew up in the, in, I listened to movie, um, music in the 50s, and uh, you remember it was, it was, oh, Rosemary Clooney and Ruby Murray and the Beverly Sisters, and it was all very bland and you used to wash over you like warm water, really. And then I heard Elvis. You know, I heard Heartbreak Hotel. What? Wow. Uh, and then other things, Little Richard and Ray Charles and Jerry Lee Lewis and the Everly Brothers. And, and I just totally fell in love with American rock and roll music and formed a group at school with, with some mates. There's a guy called Ronnie who was going to be the lead singer and... We had, and another kid said, oh, I can play a bit of guitar. And another kid, well, I think, oh, you know, I can play bass. And, so, and I said, oh, I want to be in it. And, well, what are you going to play? Well, um, drums. And I never picked up a pair of sticks or anything. Told my mum about it. And I was, I was like about 15. I said, mum, I, I need a drum kit. It's going to be like 
35 pounds is a fortune. And my mum immediately agreed, which I, I thought, wow, wow, that was easy. And it was only about six months later when I started, and I'm, I found I could play without having a lesson or anything. And my mum then told me that my dad, who died when I was 10, so didn't get to know him very well, she revealed to me that during the war years, he'd had his own dance band. And it was a, his name was Charles Thomas Bevan, but he was nicknamed Bev. And it was the Bev Bevan Trio. And that's how I got my name. I was christened, christened Beverly, which is a bit like being a boy named Sue. But, <laughs> um, that's how I got my name. And I, I, that's when my mum just agreed to that. Buy me that kid of drums. Wow, very lucky, and but obviously very talented as well. And j just to follow the Jasper theme, when you left school though, you didn't go straight into making a living out of music. You worked in a department store with Jasper Garrett, didn't you? Yeah, we we had um, we, we were useless at school. The pair of us. <laughs> in fact, I remember one of the teachers saying, "Bevan Davis, the pair of you, you'll never come to anything, either one of you," because uh, we were hopeless scholars. We really were. We had, we got four GCEs between us. You know. <laughs> And we had a careers officer come round, and I went in first and offered some jobs. I, I did try to get a job at Cadbury's, but you had to get a number of A-levels to work. I wanted to be an artist, commercial artist, so that never happened. And by this time, I'd fallen in love with music. All I wanted to do was play drums anyway. But I had to find a job to pay the HP payments on my <laughs> latest kit of drums by then. And the careers officer came, and he taught me into being a trainee buyer at the Beehive. And I came out and Jasper was there and he said, um, what, what, are you, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to be a, a trainee buyer at the Beehive. Oh, I will be as well then. <laughs> and, and so we ended up working together too. Yeah, and he did. You were there. You were only there for a year, weren't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. He stayed yeah. for three. Mm. <laughs> and then you started playing in local bands around and did a gig supporting the Beatles in 63? I, I was approached by... A guy who was the lead singer of a band called Johnny and the Dominators, who were around South Yardley area. And he wanted to form a new band, and he wanted me to be the drummer. And I agreed, because he was a very talented guy. And he, t he, he turned out to be Denny Lane. And we, we formed this band called Denny Lane and the Diplomats. And actually, we were really quite successful around... The, this is 1963, particularly for some reason in the, around the black country. Wensbury, Old Hill, Bilston... And we were kind of chosen uh, in the summer of 63 to open for the Beatles at the Old Hill Plaza. <laughs> so this is, you've got to imagine, that, uh, you remember what Beatlemania was like. They'd, they'd had Love Me Do and Please Please Me and now they just released She Loves You and, and they'd released their first album. And we were huge fans uh, in the Denelaine Diplomats, were huge fans of the Beatles. And we were asked to open for them. You've got to play like 20 minutes. You know, great. But they got delayed at the, at the, uh, at the plaza in Hansworth. And they were like nearly an hour late. And we ended up playing, I think, over an hour. And bearing in mind that most of our set was the Beatles' first album. <laughs> so we couldn't do any of that. And we did a few... And then we were literally running out of songs. And eventually I saw the Beatles arrive... And they were standing backstage and watching us. And we, we did a version of uh, Take Five by Dave Brubeck, which uh, is an instrumental 
jazz instrumental in 5-4 time with a 5-4 drum solo in it, uh, which I did, and I could see the, they were watching us from the, end, from the back. I think we did one more song, and that was the end. And I was packing my kit away behind the curtains, and, and Paul McCartney came over to me, and I was like, whoa. And he said, hey, that was great, that. That, that drummer solo in 5-4 times. He says, hey, our drummer could never do that. <laughs> so I lived on that for years. You know. oh, so you never got the offer to join the band, though. They, no. They've been through a few drummers, haven't they, in fairness? If you want to talk drum, drummers, uh, I think Ringo gets a bit derided because the people say, oh, well, he's not very good. But actually, he really is, because he, he, he can really swing rock. And there are much better drummers, I think me included at the time, but he, he, I think he fitted with the, with the Beatles so well. If you'd have got someone like Bobby Elliott or a, uh, a much more technical drummer, the Beatles wouldn't have sounded the same. He, 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 he just only got a, what a great personality as, as well, of course. Yeah. Did you know then, have any inkling that the, the Beatles would become as big as they subsequently did, that we'd still be talking about them this many years on? I don't think any of us realised that... I remember the Rollins... Mick Jagger being interviewed as another band that we worked with, with Dendelaine and the Diplomats. I think someone asking him, you know, what will you do when you're in your 30s? And oh, well... Well, not this, obviously, you know, I'll have to find a proper job or something. No one thought that people like me would still be playing venues 40, 50 years later. It's now extraordinary. So you supported the Beatles and then you ended up supporting the Stones at Birmingham Town Hall in what turned out to be the last gig of Denny Lane and the Diplomats. Yeah, um, myself and Denny went to see uh, the Spencer Davis Group at um, Birmingham University. I'd never seen him before, and of course the extraordinary Stevie Winwood, who was about 13, I think, at the time. This amazing voice, and I loved him, but Denny completely sort of fell in love with the blues on that one night and said, that's it, I'm, I'm, I'm going to play the blues, man. And, um, and he formed the Moody Blues, or the M&B Five, as they were <laughs> called, to begin with. And, great, um, great name, the M&B yeah, Five. And, and, it was a painful time for me because we carried on as the diplomats and we weren't, we, we really missed Danny because he was a very talented guy. The band folded within three months and I had to go back to, I went back to work, at, I got a job at Keenan Scott in Birmingham, another furniture store. It was Christmas time, it must have been, must have been Christmas 64 and the, the Moody Blues were on the Top of the Pops Christmas show and they're, num, you know, number one, Denny Lane and... And all I'd got was the, you know, the January sales to look forward to. <laughs> and then your next band was what? Carl Wayne and the Vikings? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah very lo long-established Birmingham band. Very popular in all the pubs and stuff. And I was at Keenan Scott, and Carl Wayne came in and said, have you heard our drummer's leaving? Are you interested in the gig? And I said, I said well, yeah, sure, OK. And he said, well, actually, we've got, we, we, you have to do an audition and I went on to this audition there were like 12 drummers at it all because they were a big band in the Birmingham area anyway I, ended up, I got the gig and I was very naive and I said oh, and he said oh yeah well we start you know can you start like sort of next week I said yeah fine you know where we're we playing Tyburn House or somewhere he said oh, oh no no in, uh, we've got a, a month in Germany <laughs> what so I didn't even got a passport or anything and that was a, a rude awakening and you probably heard about these 
American bases. We played Duisburg and Cologne. And literally, and we, you had one room, or the whole band, we had, we had an, a, like a one roadie. So six of us in, in one room. And it was disgusting. It was like you know, six inches of rubbish, literally rats running around. It was awful. And, and we had to play seven 45-minute spots a night and ten at weekends. <laughs> and we did this for four weeks. But I'll tell you what, you learn your craft doing that. And you could give up the day job at that point. You were earning £30 at, pounds a week? At, at Keenan's God, I was because I did ask, obviously, ask Carl, so, well, how much do we get paid, you know, for these gigs in Germany? I said, because I'm on, you know, I, I, I earn £9, 10 shillings a week at this. <laughs> he says, it's £30 a week, tax-free. went, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. and we came back from, from Germany, and the band, Carl and the Vikings, were going nowhere. They really were. They just run their course. And I think we would have folded. So your next career move, David Bowie has a hand in. He does. The two youngest members of what became the move were, were Ace Kefford, the bass player, and Trevor Burton. And they went to see David Bowie. I think at the time, he's just about to change his name to Bowie from David Jones. But he was, he was going to make it. There was no doubt about it. And he was playing the Cedar Club in Birmingham, which is a great club. And they, they had a word with him afterwards and just asked his advice. You know, you know, said, we want to be pop stars like you. Uh, what should we do? And his, his advice was, find the best musicians in Birmingham, put, get yourselves together, rehearse like crazy, really work hard, get yourselves down to London, do some auditions, find yourself a manager, that's what, you, that's what you should do. And that's exactly what we did. And Ace and Trevor asked Roy Wood first. He, he was with um, Mike Sheridan and the Night Riders. And he agreed to join them. Ace was with me in Carl Wayne of the Vikings at the time. I think they asked John Bonham first. <laughs> well, they did they say, get the, get, get the best musicians in the area. And, <laughs> and if, if, I'm rated, if I was rated second to John Bonham, that's fine by me, because we, we became really good friends, myself and Ponzo. And finally, we asked Carl Wayne to be... I think Jess Roden was originally asked to be the lead singer. We had Carl Wayne. And we did, as um, David Jones, Bowie, had advised, and we worked really, really hard. Got ourselves to London found a guy called Tony Secunda to manage us, who'd manage the Moody Blues. And he got us a residency at the Marquee Club in Wardour Street, which was the place. It's where Cream had been resident there, The Who. Uh, and we got a Thursday night residency. And we, we were really popular and got built up a big following. And every record company in London wanted to sign us. It's a nice position to be in. Did your yeah. paths ever cross with David Bowie again, by the way, after that? The next time I saw David Bowie was so many years later in Musicland Studios in Munich. And he was recording with Queen. Who were, who were Under pressure that time. Under yeah. pressure. Yeah. And I was actually at the session. And I did, did you know, actually said, do you remember when... And did he? He did, yeah. Oh. He's a very, very incredibly articulate man. And David Bowie, sadly, was. Mm-hmm. And so the move. Get, who did who did you sign to? Who did you sign? We 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 signed to DRAM, which is Decca, basically. Mm. And again, we were so naive because 
Our first record was, was called Light of Fear, and it got to number two in the charts. Our follow-up was a song called I Can Hear the Grass Grow, which made number five or so. And then um, Tony's kind of said, oh, uh, we've decided to switch labels. We're going to AMI now, Regal's on a phone. And we were all too naive to say, well, there must have been a big advance, you know, <laughs> you know <laughs> over our heads, that one. How naive were you at that time? Did, did, did you make any money out of these? I know there's a story about the legal case, yeah. which we'll come to in a moment. But, I mean, in the general run of things, you know, if I can hear the grass grow is played on the radio, do you get any money from that? Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. But in those days, the actual royalties, I don't know how, and it happened to all the bands, I think. A lot disappeared <laughs> before, it got, before the band saw it. So you're well established. Night of Fear is a hit. As I said to you earlier, a lesser known move song, not played on the radio very often. I can hear the grass grow, which is. And then 1967, September 67, the first song on Radio 1, Flowers in the Rain. And I suppose Tony Blackburn was the, the first DJ. It was, I think it was 7 o'clock in the morning. I've, I've worked with him over the years. And I said, well, you know, why did you pick Flowers in the Rain? He'd, he said... I wanted to wake everybody up. He said, it was the thunderstorm at the because it starts with that. And that's why I chose it. And there's only ever one first. That's a great thing. So Flowers in the Rain, first track played on Radio 1. Mm -hmm. Big hit again, your third big hit. Yeah. But. But. <laughs> our, our manager, bless him, Tony Secunda, at the time, who was publicity crazy. He really was. He had us... We carried a, a replica H-bomb through the streets of Manchester. We, we did all the daftest things. But he, to launch Flowers in the Rain, he had this postcard drawn. It was a, was a cartoon depicting Harold Wilson and this rumour that he was having an affair. Harold Wilson was then the Prime Minister. I was then the Prime Minister. And he, I think I, I, Tony had about 100 of these things printed. He made sure they were pushed through all the letterboxes of all the um, newspapers and number 10 Downing Street. <laughs> so there was a rumour he was having a, an affair with his secretary, Marcia Faulkner, yeah. later Lady Faulkner. Yes. And what did, the, what did the cartoon say? I can't remember exactly what it is. Something like, despicable Harold may be, beautiful is the only word to describe flowers in the rain by the move. Uh, obviously, Harold Wilson objected to this big time took us to court for libel, and we, we the band, knew nothing about it. <laughs> Literally nothing. We didn't even know this thing existed. In the age of social media, that would pass for polite banter, wouldn't it? Yes. Right? So, but, so was it, I mean, was the, at the time, would the meaning have been clear that it was inferring that, that they were having well, an it affair? Well, it was never... It was never... Uh, as I, uh, we, 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 typical of us, the move, we, did, we missed the court case. We were late <laughs> arriving... And it was all set up that we should arrive in this, this big Rolls Royce that supposedly had driven us up from down, rather, from Birmingham. And, and the truth was, we arrived in our transit van and parked <laughs> it about 100 yards from the old Bailey or whatever it was and got into this Rolls Royce and drove about 100 yards. By this time, the, the, court, the case was over and we were found guilty, even though we knew nothing about it. And all the royalties from then to this day of Flowers in the Rain and the B-side, both written by Roy Wood, all the royalties and all Roy's songwriting royalties still go to charities of Harold Wilson's choice. What was the post-court 
meeting with Tony Secunda like. <laughs> uh, no, it wasn't. Um, they got you plenty of publicity. It Come did, on. but uh, it was such a good record. It would have been a massive hit anyway. It didn't need that to happen, you know. And it, it subsequently led to uh, us basically firing Tony Secunda as our manager. And the move then started to disintegrate. First ago was Ace Kefford, the bass player, who totally overdosed on some homemade LSD. And, and it's a shame he's never been right since, really. I bumped into him a couple of years ago, and he's, he's, he's a lot better than he was, but he, mm. it's, a, it's a shame. He's a nice, yeah. nice man. But, but the move did tour, didn't you? toured with Hendrix, oh, yeah. Pink Floyd in the Sid Barrett era. What did you see of those bands? I think that's the move's best time. Was, we'd had three or four hits by then, and we went on this tour, as you said, it was Jimi Hendrix was we shared top billing Jimi Hendrix and the move but nobody follows Jimi Hendrix so we closed the first half he closed the second but lower down on the bill were Pink Floyd and Amen Corner The Nice with Keith Emerson it was a fabulous tour we did two shows a night got uh, for about 15 almost consecutive nights in November and December of 68 you told me later, I'm just jumping ahead, you told me later you did a tour with Rod Stewart who blanked you throughout the tour. <laughs> how, how was Jimi Hendrix? Did you have any dealings with him? And, and presumably you watched him from the side of the stage. Oh, he's a, a, what a lovely man he was, Jimmy. Well, they all were. Um, Mitch and Noel, you know, they were great people. From his band, But, but yeah. uh, the thing about Jimmy was on stage, he was such a wild man, playing a, a Fender upside down really weird thing to do but he was such a gentleman he was an ex-US serviceman and what I know he was such a polite man you know if a, a woman lady walks in the room he used, to, he used to stand up and he was such a quietly spoken and Jimmy and Mitch they're, they're all sadly no longer with us it's a shame and same Sid Barrett another talented guy mm. and he still continued though the move I mean he said the band was starting <coughs> to fall apart 69 a US tour was that your first US yeah. tour again it's something that Tony Secunda should have done when the move were really hot when we were a really tight five piece band we should have gone to America we were, we were always working with, with, with The Who with Cream with, with Hendrix and with Pink Floyd we should have gone to America and we, for some reason we didn't go and by the time we went in 69 Ace Kefford had gone and Trevor Burton had gone. And it was myself, Roy Wood, Carl Wayne and Rick Price. And it was a good band. But we'd lost that verve that we had to begin. You know, we're just a bit... And when we came back, Carl left then because he wanted to become like the next Engelbert Humperdinck. He'd gone that route. <laughs> and, and that's when we brought Jeff Lynne into the, into the move uh, in about well, 1970. I was just thinking that. I mean, obviously, you'd... you'd seen a bit of the world, you'd played in Germany and so on, but it was still unusual for people to travel to the United States at that time, wasn't it? What, what were your observations on the States at the time? How different did that feel to Birmingham? We were in awe of being in America finally, uh, and we landed in New York, and there was, so the four of us, plus we had one roadie, a real character called John Upsey Downing, he drove us, basically. And we, we hired, a, it was a, a Dodge uh, saloon and a U-Haul trailer on the back. And we, we went to Manny's in New York and I bought a drum kit and we bought some other musical instruments and we drove from 
New York to Detroit, and we did two nights at a place called the Grandy Ballroom with Iggy and the Stooges. And then we drove from Detroit to LA. So we did Route 66, the old Route 66. And along, like we stopped for fuel in the middle of Texas or somewhere. Uh, and with all these, we've got, we've got long hair and you know, we look pretty <laughs> like a bunch of hippies. That's what these, these cowboys spotted us. We got into this horrendous punch up with these cowboys. And Opsy was big, big, strong guy. They, one guy just laid him out with one punch and we had to drag him in the car and Carl Wayne at the wheel. And <laughs> imagine the dust spinning, screaming tires. And these cowboys chasing us out of, out of town, shooting. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we drove right across Route 66 to LA and we had five nights residency at the Whiskey A Go Go. And that was an amazing time. And we, we, we'd landed in Hippiesville in, in, in LA. And all these people came to see us. The doors came. And Jim Morrison was like the coolest dude as he walked in. And within half an hour, he's been dragged out completely unconscious. You know. <laughs> and the, the carpenters came to see us. They were just this <laughs> new duo that had just been invented. Joni Mitchell came with Graham Nash. And invited us back to their house in Laurel Canyon. Did and you it, go? It, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> and then from there we drove. I take it neither of the carpenters was dragged out unconscious. No, no, no. Oh, no. <laughs> they were so young and, yeah, innocent. And then we drove to San Francisco and we did five nights at the Fillmore West, the move opening the show, Little Richard next on the bill, and Joe Cocker. Wow. And so it was a, it was a, an amazing three weeks. Yeah, an incredible list of bands that you've played yeah, with. It is amazing, isn't it? So then at this point then, the, the move continuing, but you said starting to fall apart, and Jeff Lynn has mm -hmm. come on the scene. So you, you're both in the move and what, in the fledgling electric light orchestra? Yeah, well, the move, we'd had, by this time, we'd had something like seven hits. And we went on to have, I think, Tonight and Chinatown. And the last hit was California Man in 72. But by then, we'd had a hit with ALO, with 10538 Overture. Because Jeff Lynn only joined the move. He wasn't interested in the move. They were like old news. He wanted to form a new band that was totally different to anything else. And he wanted to work with Roy. And I don't think he was happy to work with me. And this is what we did. And but the first hit was a Jeff Lynn song, 10538 Overture. And I think Woody got a bit disillusioned by all this. And it wasn't working out quite how he envisioned. And without telling me or Jeff, he just left and, and formed Wizard, which became massive, massive in this country, but he never made, made anything in America. No, and whereas ELO, we went out of our way to concentrate on being successful. And you were 15 years in ELO with Jeff. Did, yeah. I mean, did he ever sit down and say, this is my master plan in terms of both the music that I want, sort of combining rock music with classical orchestra and wanting to conquer the United States specifically? Well, we were all such massive Beatle fans. And I think we, as we all did, we, you, you hear... You hear Sergeant Pepper or something, and you go, wow. And we wanted to sound 
something like that. But the, what the Beatles had never done is, they're fantastic in the studio, but they they never took any of this orchestral stuff on the road. And that that's, was our initial choice of things to do, really. Mm-hmm. And ELO obviously were a very successful band and, and did succeed in the United States. Yeah. In a, perhaps in some ways more successful than they were here. Oh, to begin with, definitely, yeah. We started building a bit of a following, and then we got offered this amazing tour with, with Deep Purple, about a 70-date American tour, and we were like special guests on it. And so we got to play all of these fabulous arenas, sold-out, 20,000-type arenas. And then the next year, we, we were playing these places top of the bill. But the fact that we'd done it with Deep Purple, so we, you know, we'd got an idea of what, how to work these arenas now. Yeah, pretty amazing uh, times. Yes, and I, but how did it work with Jeff? I mean, because he's, you know, my sense of him, I don't know him, I've interviewed him a couple of times, yeah. my sense of Jeff Lynn is that he is somebody who just throws himself into the studio and, yeah. you know, has many tracks going at the same time. Were you part of that process or does Jeff bring you in when he's no, ready? No, I, I was, uh, myself and Richard Tandy mm. um, were always there in the studio. And it was fascinating to see because Jeff would bring, just bring, he'd play us a song on just play on a guitar and it was just very rough and usually no lyrics either. You know, da la da la 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 da 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 da. And, and then, uh, you know, I'd work out a drum part that, that fitted, and Richard would do some keyboards. Kelly Groker would play, put a bass line mm. down. But the, the songs would gradually, it would gradually, uh, it was always the drums first, and then usually the bass, keyboards, guitar. And it was like a, a it's like layering a cake. And then, when the orchestra was put on it, that was like, wow. But, uh, but uh, often Jeff hadn't s- sung anything, so he, he'd write the lyrics and then this, these songs would take shape and he had such a, a fabulous ear for commerciality and just songs in general. It was great to, to watch, to witness what was just something being strummed and going la li la li la and turning into something like Mr Blue Sky. I mentioned at the start of ELO you were still in the move, there was a bit of a crossover there. ELO, you were in them till 86, but Mm -hmm. Jeff really didn't want to tour after 81. Yeah, you can't really... We we really finished, I think it was the time tour. The big big tour, our final... I think ELO's finest moment was the Out of the Blue tour with the spaceship. I don't know anybody ever saw that show, but it was... um, it was pretty amazing. It was Sharon Arden who, uh, um, Sharon Osborne, Sharon Arden at the time. Uh, it was a lot of that was to, was her idea that spaceship, and it was it was such a an amazing sh- show to witness because here was this, and it was a time of close encounters of the third kind. And so the spaceship would land, and it would open, and then all the band would come up on these risers, electronic risers, so we'd appear through all the, the lasers and the smoke and we'd do the show and then it would it would close. And so there was no encore because it was that you know the the, the spaceship had landed, <laughs> it had done its show <laughs> and then it had gone. Yeah and of course Don Arden, Sharon Osborne, Sharon Arden's mm-hmm. 
dad was by then your manager, wasn't he? Yeah, there are some good... <laughs> Don Arden had some, a reputation and <laughs> it was uh, well-founded. For what, for being a hard man? Yeah, absolutely. You didn't cross him? You didn't cross Don, no way. He, was our, he wasn't our manager, but he was our agent um, in quite early move, move days. So about... I remember one particular incident. We did a gig somewhere just outside London, Brentford or somewhere, and I think I went to get collect the money, uh, and the promoter said, "Oh no, no I'm, well, I'm, we're not paying you. You didn't do your full hour or whatever." Oh, yes, we did. No, you didn't. You know. So I phoned Don Arden, told him what had happened, and he said, "Take your time packing the gear away." It was only it was only the band and one roadie. It was early days, and within oh, 20 minutes, these guys arrived. There's a, there's a guy called Wilf Pine, who's and someone who's no longer with us, I'm afraid. But he is very smartly dressed guy, three-piece suit, tie, briefcase. And there's a couple of big guys with him. And they thumped a couple of the management's <laughs> bouncers who hadn't been kind to us. And then eventually the actual promoter came out with the money Oh, sorry, yeah, misunderstanding, <laughs> misunderstanding. Sorry. And this Wilf says, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll take that, yeah, thanks. And, and it's, he opens his briefcase, and in it was a hammer with lots of gaffer tape around that chip. And he, he took out the hammer and he went, <coughs> and broke both his, guy, this, both his kneecaps. <gasps> and he said, you won't do that again, will you? <laughs> and the move were never, ever knocked again. After that incident, the word went round like wildfire. As in, as in, you pay him on time. You don't. Yeah, mess and you don't mess with Don Arden. You don't mess with <laughs> any of Don Arden's bands. So you saw this guy having his knees broken. Yeah, it wasn't. <laughs> it's um, a good story though. <laughs> mm. <laughs> the Don Arden connection and partly your Birmingham connection take you to to tour with Black Sabbath in eighty two, eighty three. Well, Jeff was uh, was always he was quite reluctant to, to tour. He much preferred being in the studio. Um, creating new sounds. We had, you know, we had to drag him out at three o'clock in the morning. Now we've got to go to bed. You know. um, and he loved the studio. And by, and by this, by 1981, he'd met people like George Harrison, and he was he's going to meet Roy Orbison, and, and he, started, he worked on uh, a, an old Beatles record that he he remixed and put together. So that that's what he he really loved doing. He didn't want to be on the road. So, uh, I could see that. To, what, the beginnings then of the Travelling Wilburys for him? Yeah, he would yeah. be, yeah. yeah. So uh, we did this time tour, which I think was 81, 82. He said he didn't want to tour anymore. So I, I love touring. I still do to this day with, with Quill now. I, I just love to tour. I love to play live on stage. He's changed his mind now because he's working with Jefflin ZLO and doing very, very well. But for, for years, he, he just wanted to be in the studio. So I wanted to tour, and then I got a phone call from my old friend, Tony Iommi, who is still probably my best pal in the music business, asking me if I wanted to join Black Sabbath for this upcoming tour, because they'd made this new album called Born Again with Bill Ward, who's a fine drummer, but he was not in good shape physically, and a Black Sabbath, you've got to be pretty fit to, be, to do a Black Sabbath tour. Uh, he couldn't do it. So I did the I did the actual tour, which was 
uh, Europe, and we did only one show in in in, in England. That was in Britain. Only so one show headlining the Reading yeah, Festival. Yeah, headlining the Reading Festival. We, and luckily, there's a live album made of that. Mm. That's my only recordings with Black Sabbath, and we did two American tours. So that that took me through, got me through the early early eighties. And I should say, Ian Gillan was the singer of the time. Ian Black Gillan Sabbath, was the singer, he? yeah. Not Ozzy, but you did know Ozzy from your Birmingham Yeah, past. I, knew, I knew Ozzy. He, well, what a, yeah, everyone knows Ozzy. I probably, <laughs> um, he is a terrific character. I mean, there's, there's only one Ozzy. Well, I mean, now, because of the, you know, the, the TV show, he is a bit of a caricature. Yeah. People see him as that. What, what, what do you remember of him around Birmingham? My most endearing memory of, of Ozzy was he was with Sharon and they got the, their children were young and they got this lovely house in Buckinghamshire it was Dirk Bogard's old house I was invited down it was bonfire night I'd come down and we'd have a, a big a party you know bon, I'd have a massive bonfire basically so I went down got there it was about it was a Sunday got there about one o'clock and uh, Ozzy answered the door and he went, oh, in, t- in terrible trouble I am. He says, Sharon's really pissed off with me now. I said, well, well what's up? He said, I just went out for, I just went out for a drink. <laughs> I, said, oh, what's, I said, well, you're back now. You know, as we said, one o'clock, you know. What's the problem? I said, oh, no, she won't have it. I said, well, wait a minute. I said, when did you go for this drink? He went, uh... Thursday. <laughs> That's Ozzy. <laughs> well, that, I mean, that is very much living the, the rock and roll dream, is it? The, the big house in Buckinghamshire mm-hmm. and all that sort of stuff. And I, I, I promised that we would talk about the, the moment on the tour that you did with Black Sabbath, which takes oh, us back yeah. to Don Arden, that inspires the Stonehenge scene <laughs> in Spinal Tap. <laughs> well, on the back of this album, Born Again, I think it was Geezer Butler had come up with the idea of why don't we have a Stonehenge stage set, which is great because it's very rock, it's very heavy metal. What a great idea. So, and actually, Geezer's quite artistic too. So he actually drew up the plans based on Stonehenge, obviously, and that, uh, for these, this stage set to be made, looking like Stonehenge. Unfortunately, he dr- um, where he meant three foot, the measurements actually said, he said it was three yards. So it was three times. When it arrived, for the f- we, had, we rehearsed at the NAC, and when these things arrived, they were three times bigger than, than <laughs> Geezer had <laughs> anticipated. And, and the, we, 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 the tour was just about to begin. And we actually flew all this stuff to America. Uh, the, and the first show we did, somewhere like Atlanta or somewhere, it would not fit on the stage. <laughs> and so we ended up ditching most of it. We kept a small percentage of it, half of it maybe. But the rest just had to be dumped. <laughs> and, this is, and this is where Spinal Sap did, they did the reverse role. And they had their little stone hands in there, <laughs> yes. and they're all dancing around it. Yeah. 
And uh, pretty much that was it then. 86 was pretty much it for ALO. You had one concert, didn't you, in 86? Well, yeah, I, I helped. Uh, there was, remember Live Aid, and I was very impressed with Live Aid. And uh, I thought it would be nice to have um, a similar thing uh, to raise money for a local charity, which turned out to be Birmingham Children's Hospital. And we had a fabulous night at the NEC, and everyone I asked to do it pretty much did. We had the Applejacks reformed, you know, and the, uh, the Rocking Berries, uh, Denny Lane came, UB40 were there, uh, the Moody Blues. It, it was a great, great show, and ELO. Uh, and Jasper Carrot was the compere. And it was a, a Robert Plant, my old friend Robert was there. Uh, it was a great, great night. Uh, and, but the icing on the cake was at the very end, we just did a bit of a rock and roll jam to finish. And Jasper said, oh, we've got, we've got what, all the whole the people who have been on stage were on the stage together at the end. And he said, oh, we've got the, the, one more person, actually it was two, it was Dave Edmonds came. Oh, oh and this guy called George Harrison. <laughs> and George jammed with us at the end, and it was a, it was a, yeah, it was a great, great night. And I'm very, and we ra in the end we raised a lot of money. I, mean, I think near close to a million pounds for the wow, Children's Hospital. That's fantastic. And uh, you love touring, as you said, mm. and you love being on stage. Jeff didn't, so you set off on the road with ELO two. ELO part two, which wasn't a great name. It's the one we were kind of allowed to use, um, and it was a very good band. It really was, and it was most of uh, uh, the people that, that had been in ALO. We toured a lot. We did a lot of British tours. We did uh, a lot of American tours. Went to Australia, New Zealand, and got to visit places that I'd never been before, like the whole of South America, which ALO had never been to South America. And something else that ALO Part 2 did, and I think it, we had Lou Clark, who was the, uh, the arranger, uh, or orchestral arranger for ALO. He was a, he actually conducted some great orchestras, the London Philharmonic, the, the Sydney Symphony, the Los Angeles Symphony. The oh, about, we worked with a, a dozen fab Singapore Symphony. It's a very good live band, but we were playing mainly ELO hits, and we did make two albums of original songs, and I wrote a lot of them, and Phil Bates did, and. They were good songs, but they weren't good enough. They weren't Jefflin standard. But that's not why ELO Part 2 fell apart, was it? No, we, well, I, I d Jeff wasn't happy with us touring as ELO Part 2. We did our best to stick to the rules. You know, we were supposed to be, always go out as ELO Part 2, obviously. And we did when we, when we did American shows and when we did UK tours. But when you find yourself in Buenos Aires, <laughs> and it just says ELO. <laughs> and what are you going to do? You know, you're going to go, oh, we can't go on, sorry. But it was all rather sad, wasn't it? Because Jeff, your old mate, a bloke you've been in a band with for 15 years, ended up taking you to court. Yeah, well, he never went, actually went to court, but well, he got settled yeah. out. He got yeah. settled out of court. And uh, I, I, I disbanded ELO Part 2 in 99. Did that drive a wedge personally between you and Jeff? Yeah, we, we haven't really spoken since. Hoping that might change still. I think it's... It's a lot of water under the bridge now. Yes, <laughs> I think I've seen other interviews with you, and I, I wasn't sure if he'd sort of come forward at any point because you've made it clear that you're happy to let bygones be bygones. Yeah, I, I, and I hope, hopefully he will be too. We, um, 
Last time I saw him was at a, sadly at a funeral together. Trevor Francis's wife Helen. I left because I had, I had a, a, a Jasper Carrot stand-up and rock show to get to, <laughs> and I, apparently Jeff actually said, "Oh, you know, oh, if Bev had come over, you know, we would have we would have shaken hands." So next time, hopefully not a, not a funeral. <laughs> and you mentioned stand-up and rock. That's something you've done since then with Jasper and uh, quite quite a few years now, isn't it? A kind of combination of you playing with Quill, Jasper doing a bit of stand-up, other bands as well. Yeah, it's a very successful show, and if, if you've all seen it or not, called Jasper invented the phrase stand-up and rock, and it is, it is exactly that. Jasper does the stand-up, the Bev Bevan band do the rock. For years it was, we had guest singers, uh, Jeff Turton from the Rocking Berries, Joy Streckenbrain from Quill. Terrific show. Uh, this year Jasper decided not to do it, he may do it again next year, I don't know, but he did, he did, you know, went through a hard time with his quadruple bypass, you know, so mm-hmm. I think he thought it was time to maybe slow down a bit. You've had quite a career as a, as a radio presenter as well, I did that. Yeah, well, you're, you've been my colleague at WM. Mm, radio WM, yeah. Um, uh, and uh, I started with Saga, as that short-lived, probably should have kept going, I think, uh, and Smooth Radio. And, and several years at WM. You're a strange match for Smooth Radio. A man who's made his name playing with <laughs> Jimi Hendrix, Iggy and the Stooges, playing for Smooth, smooth. Radio. <laughs> smooth Radio. Yeah. I enjoyed turning people onto other people's music, you know, as mm. well. And I used to like that when I had a radio show. And you could try and educate people into listening to stuff that they'd maybe not listened to before. Because like, I, st- I just love music. I really do. And myself and Joy, we're writing songs for Quill, so I'm trying to create new stuff still. And I'm still very enthusiastic, and I must say I'm, I'm very fortunate that there's not many people, I think, who've spent the whole their lives loving what they do. I just love my job. Bev, Bev, Bev. <laughs>